Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. We hope to challenge and equip you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus through these messages from our weekend worship gatherings. We are so glad you're joining us for our summer series at Vintage Church as we examine the life of Jesus through the eyes and experience of his most beloved disciple, John. We hope that you are curious and committed as we take a closer look at Jesus and reflect on what it means to live and love like Him. Good morning. How are we doing, church? Everybody good? Go ahead and grab your Bible. Go to the Gospel of John chapter 19. We're going to get there in just a minute. Go- Gospel of John chapter 19. If you notice, I do have a little congestion going on. I do not have the Rona. Anybody else like you scared to have allergies right now? Because you're afraid they're going to put you in some prison camp for 14 days? <laughs> it's like you, you have to fake it because you don't know what's going to happen. Anyway, uh, I'm just regular cold kind of stuff. I felt like I just had to say that because somebody's going to be online. Pastor sounds congested. <laughs> so today we wrap up several weeks that we have been spending in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is, is just this phenomenal journal by this man named John who spent time with Jesus. And when people come to faith, and maybe you're new to the faith, maybe you've just accepted Jesus, and when people come to me, the, one of the first questions I get as a pastor is, Matt, I'm really overwhelmed by the Bible. Like, where do I start? Because when you first come to faith, and maybe you didn't grow up in church, and maybe you haven't spent time around the Word of God, and it can be a daunting task. It can be a daunting task even when you've been walking with Jesus for a while. Amen? Y'all not intimidated by the Bible? Sometimes I am. It's intimidating. And so people always ask me, Matt, where, where do I start? And I always, I, I say two things. Start with the Gospel of John, then go to the book of James. Because the Gospel of John will teach you about Jesus and who he is and what he has done. And the, and, and the book of James will help you understand what it means to follow him. Those two books are, are a great place to start. And over the last few weeks, we've been walking through this recollection, this reflection by John, when he is this older man now, and he, all the other gospels have been written and have been transcribed and are being passed around to the churches that have been birthed since Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven. And these letters are circulating all across the globe. And Paul has, has taken The gospel outside of this small little area around Jerusalem and the gospel has spread out from nation to nation and it was not confined to one people group, one nationality, one skin color, one culture. No, it has infiltrated. By the time John writes his gospel, the the gospel has spread all over the world nearly. It's amazing. In In just a few short decades, the message of Jesus It's being carried from nation to nation. And John knows that, hey, maybe it would be beneficial for these new new believers or these people that are coming to Jesus to kind of hear my side of the story. Because I had this unique experience with Jesus. Because not only I, John, was I one of the 12. I was part of this group of three, me and Peter and James, who got to see things that other people didn't get to see, who got to experience things. I got to go on this mountain one time and watch Jesus be transfigured and this crazy thing happened. I had this special relationship with Jesus. And there's some things that the others 
didn't get into that I think you need to hear. And not only does he share these stories of these insights and these conversations that Jesus had with religious leaders like Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night just curious about what this rabbi from Nazareth was all about. And not only did he get to see this conversation that Jesus had with this woman that was the last person that a man like Jesus should be talking with. One day when he was just at this well expecting a drink of water. And he got to stand on the mountain that day when, when Jesus fed thousands of people that these crowds had gathered around Jesus and they, they didn't have any food. They didn't have a food truck rolling around. They didn't have a, a catering service lined up. No, they took this little boy's lunch and Jesus touched it and prayed over it, and it multiplied, and, and it fed these thousands of people. And John gives us all of those stories, but then John very quickly moves us into the last few hours of Jesus' life. We get to see an insight into this upper room experience like none of the other gospel writers give us, where Jesus gathers in this rented room with those 12 that he had invested in for at this point about three and a half years. And Jesus knows that his time is coming. Like it's, it's really getting near. The thing that he really came to do, because yes, Jesus came to teach. He came to do miracles. He came to convince people that he was more than just a man, that he was fully divine and fully human and all this full, fully God wrapped into this one flesh. But ultimately he came to die. Because see, from the Garden of Eden, man had made decisions that separated us from God. God's holy and perfect, and he can't have intimacy with us because sin severed that relationship. And Adam and Eve weren't the only one. Every human's made decisions that we call sin that have separated us from God. And until that sin is atoned for until those mistakes, until there's a penalty paid for those, we can't have a right relationship with God. You with me? Come on, somebody. And so Jesus came to be that sacrifice. He came to pay that penalty for us. And it's coming time when that final penalty would be paid. And Jesus knows it. There's there's something in him that senses that this moment when he's gonna experience the death that he came to die is near, and he's been preparing his disciples for that moment. And we've been walking through that conversation over the last several weeks. And finally, they would exit that upper room. And last week, we looked at that moment where Jesus prayed for those disciples and these disciples. When Jesus steps out and we get a glimpse into something we don't often get to see, where we get to see and hear Jesus pray because most often Jesus would withdraw all alone by himself to pray. But this time he prays in front of his disciples. But then he would pray again. He would go into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, was asking, he would ask his disciples to stay and wait and watch. And he would withdraw to himself because he knew it was near. And he's overwhelmed. Because, I don't know, maybe he knew the exact death he would die. Because, you know, Jesus wasn't the first to be crucified. He wasn't the first. He wasn't the last. He wasn't the only. I think sometimes as Christians, we convince ourselves that, that the cross was like only for and reserved for Jesus. No, this was a form of capital punishment created by the Roman Empire, which was the most 
heinous, painful way possible to die. Jesus throughout his entire life would have heard the moans and screams of people being crucified on a cross. So Jesus knew that this death was coming and if it was gonna be the death the way the Romans did it, he knew how excruciating it would be. And John records in his gospel that while he's in the garden praying, here comes one of their own, Judas. And he's not alone. He's got with him a regiment of Roman soldiers and they're there to arrest Jesus. And they come up to Jesus in the garden and and John even records that, that Peter, when he comes, when those Roman soldiers come in and they go to arrest Jesus, Peter draws his sword. He's ready to fight. He's down to go. And he takes his sword, and, and when the Roman soldier comes up to Jesus, he swipes at him. And I don't know if, if, if he's trying to cut his head off or what he's trying to do, but he, he hits his ear and slices his ear off. And Jesus knows, like, once again, Peter, dude, I've been trying to tell you all along that this was coming. You cannot resist what God has ordained. And Jesus picks up the soldier's ear and puts it back on reattaches it to his head. And then what would proceed over the next several hours was really illegal and unlawful. Jesus would spend the entire evening going from one trial to the next because there was a group of people so determined to kill Jesus, they were gonna do what had to be done no matter what. They were unstoppable. They were unrelenting. So finally, Jesus finds himself as you move into John chapter 19 before the only man that had authority to execute him in that area, a man by the name of Pilate. Pilate was appointed by the Roman Empire by Caesar to be the the governor over that region. By this point, Rome had conquered the known world. Yet Israel had a king named Herod, but he was just a figurehead. Rome was in charge, and Pilate was the one, and Pilate would be the only one that had the authority to send Jesus to the cross. And they're trying to convince Pilate that that there is good reason for Jesus to be executed. Because Rome didn't become the conqueror of the known world without being vicious. Any threat to Caesar would be squashed immediately. Any person or any entity that they thought would in any way be a danger to Caesar's reign, they would kill him. And that's what they begin to convince Pilate Jesus was. Hey, last, Saturday, last Sunday, this Jesus, he rolled into town on a donkey and they gave him a parade fit for a king. They, they're gonna try to make him king, Pilate, so you need to make sure you squash this because he is a threat to Caesar. And Pilate, His wife had had this dream. And Pilate's very conflicted about what to do with this Jesus, thinking that maybe he will get them to subside. He orders that Jesus be flogged, if you go to 19, verse 1. And now it's easy to read that passage that he had Jesus flogged and just skip over it if you don't understand what flogging was. Flogging was where they they would basically bend you over a rock. And they would take a whip made of leather. And in the tips of the towels of that, of that whip would be sewn bone. 
And what they would do is they would bend you over that rock and they would slap that whip down into your flesh and rip it down your back. They would hit you in the middle of your shoulder blades, the bone digging into your skin, and then they would pull it down, ripping all the flesh off your back. They would, they would do 39 lashes in a flogging. Why? Because they convinced that 40 would kill you. So they would beat you to the brink of death. But that didn't satisfy their thirst for blood. They were determined to see Jesus die. So go with me into the scripture. Verse 12 of John chapter 19. It says, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept on shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement. Verse 14. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. They were determined to kill him. They were convinced he had to die. They were so threatened by who he was and so misunderstood what he came to do that they made it their mission to make sure that he died. But all along, God was at work. And if you read the other gospels, you have this full account where here's Jesus beaten and bloodied, hasn't slept in hours because these trials had lasted all throughout the evening. And now he would be forced to carry his own cross to a hill where he would die the most painful death imaginable. And finally, as they get him to the cross and they raise him up, and what they would do is they would, they would stretch you out on a cross as, as, as far as your limbs could go. They would pull your arms until basically it felt like your chest was gonna rip open. And they would take a spike and, and, and drive it somewhere in your hand or your wrist and in your feet together. And they would, they would strap you in that thing so hard that it would take all the effort you have just to get breath in your lungs. And while all this is unfolding, those same men that had spent that evening in the upper room with Jesus were scattered. By this point, Peter's already denied him three times and the others are at best watching from a distance. But it seems as if John somehow, for some reason, stays near. Because look what, look what it says. Verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his brothers, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the, disciples whom, and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, Standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. So it seems as if John was the only one that we really have recorded who's, who's near, near enough for Jesus to take notice of him. That Jesus is spread wide on the cross, bared before all, mocked, beaten, a sign put above his head, king of the Jews. A makeshift mocking crown of thorns wired together and pressed down onto his head. 
And John is standing there and he's watching all of this unfold. And we get really no insight to his emotions and what he's experiencing in this moment. But he recalls this moment. He's standing there with Jesus' mom. And Jesus looks out from the cross and notices John. And he knows that he's leaving and he needs somebody to care for his mom. Because remember, in this culture, obviously by this point, sometime Jesus' earthly father has gone, he's passed. Joseph, he's nowhere mentioned outside of the, the Christmas narrative. So at some point, Jesus lost his earthly father. We have no idea when and where and how that happened. But the very fact that Jesus would appoint John to take care of his mom because he knows dad's gone, I'm gone, somebody's got to look after her. And what must John have felt in that moment? Because you don't just trust anybody with your mama. And John's standing there watching all this unfold. And as he's recording these details, he doesn't give us the emotions in real time. Because see, now he's on the other side and he's decades removed from all this and he's understanding all the beauty that's happening. But then he finally records, verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge on it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So John's standing there and he's watching all of this unfold and he sees what's happening. And now on the other side, he knows that, that Jesus was waiting for everything to be fulfilled because this death wasn't a normal death. That these people were convinced that they had won. They were convinced that they had finally rid the world of this blaspheming, heretic Jesus because that's what they believed they were doing. The religious were convinced that they were doing the right thing. But for everything to be made perfect and made whole, Jesus waited for just the right, even, even the moment he took his last breath was intentional and ordained by the Father. And he says, it is finished. What did he mean? Everything that needs to be done in order to pay the price of the sin of the world has now been taken. The sin of the world has been dumped on Jesus and the price and penalty necessary to redeem humanity from its sin and make us right with God had just been paid. Our relationship with God bought back by his one and only son. It is finished. And with that, Jesus willingly gave up his life because sin had to be paid for. The mistakes that we all had made were dumped on Jesus. So there's a moment recorded in the other gospels where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, for the first time, God dumps the sin of humanity on Jesus and he felt what it was like 
for sin to separate him from the Father. He dumped my sin and your sin and all of humanity's sin on Jesus so that he could pay the price necessary to make us right with God. And when Jesus gave up his life and said, it is finished, he was saying, it's complete. Everything that needs to be done to pay for your sin and my sin had been done in that moment. And then they watched as they pulled Jesus' lifeless body off the cross and go and stuff it in a borrowed tomb. And over the next evening and day, all felt lost. I think John would even say to you in that moment, in that real time, I was confused and I was scared. I didn't understand what was happening. As I'm writing it now, as a ripe old man, I understand that everything Jesus was doing was to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill the prophecies about the Messiah so that we would believe and understand what was happening. But in the moment, I didn't understand it. But Friday would eventually give way to Sunday. John 20, verse one. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Once again, that's John. And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Don't you love how John has to throw it out there? I beat him. He bent over, verse five, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. That on Friday, I stood there next to Jesus' mom, confused, anxious, worried about what all this would mean. And then I watched him pull his lifeless body down from the cross and stuff it in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And I woke up Sunday, not sure what my life was gonna be like now. I'd given up everything to follow Jesus. I'd walked away from my family, my job, my career, everything. And Sunday came, and as the sun rose, my hopes didn't. And then all of a sudden, these women came running, saying, we went to the tomb and Jesus is not there. And it didn't make sense. So me and Peter, we, we ran for this tomb and I was, I was so anxious to see what was happening that I, was, I outran Peter, but I got to the tomb and I, and I couldn't even go in. I was paralyzed with wonder. And then Peter went in and he says, he's gone. 
and I had to see for myself. And I walked in and I saw the linens with no body. And it wasn't just like the linens were just there. It, it, it appeared as if Jesus had rose and had actually taken off the one that was around his head because it was laying in a whole nother place. He didn't just disappear, he rose. He came back to life. And then we saw him show up in all these places. He would go on to tell us that we were locked in a room and he just appeared there. He even forgave Peter for denying him. What just happened? And I guess John would tell us the best way he could sum it up would be this, the words he had already written in John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And everything that I've written is so that you would believe that. There's another John 3.16 that I like. It's 1 John 3.16, where John says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us that everything that I have written is to get you to understand that they missed it. Those religious people and so many others got to see what I saw, but never believed what I believe. And though it hadn't been easy, and what I've had to go through in reward for my loyalty to Jesus has been difficult. What they've done to me has not been fair, but it's been worth it because I saw it with my own eyes. I watched him willingly die and I watched him triumphantly rise and it's changed my life. It has given me the hope and joy that nothing else can give and I write all this so that you can believe. And I've preached all this so that you will believe that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that when you believe in him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. So with you as you're seated, or hopefully somewhere if you're watching online, are the communion elements. So if you wanna go ahead and take those and I'm gonna give you some instructions in just a second. This, would, this meal was introduced in that upper room, but it would not make sense till after Sunday. The body and blood of Jesus. And Jesus said that when we gather, we should do this to remember what we've just read and heard. The body and blood of Jesus. Now, look at me. This is also very serious and scripture says it's serious and that if we eat this bread and drink this drink in this moment without believing in what it represents, that we make a mockery of it. So I'm gonna ask 
that you respect that and understand it. That when you eat that bread, you're not just eating bread. It represents the body of Jesus that was knelt over that rock and hit with that whip and put on that cross. And that juice is representative of the blood that he shed to atone for your sins so that you could be made right with God. And as you eat and drink, you do it reverently and powerfully knowing what it means, what it represents, and how it changes everything and who we are. So with you are those elements if you're in the room. In a minute, you'll tear the top half off and that will reveal the bread, his body shed broken for you. Then you'll peel the next layer off, the juice representing the blood shed for your forgiveness. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna have this meal together as we worship and we're gonna sing and we're gonna soak in the reality of the sacrifice of Jesus. So Father, I pray that this is a holy moment, a moment unlike any other, that God, we don't do this out of ritual or habit. We don't do it casually. God, we do it fully understanding what it means. That you came to this world and you gave up your life so that we could have it, that you have paid for sin and you have defeated death. And so God, today we take this sacrament acknowledging the reality of who you are and God, what you have done for us. So God, make it special. Meet with us in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Since God sets a lost, it's crippled. 
No guilt and light, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. And I said, in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can So today, as we finish our journey through John, we finish where John started. John chapter one. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. See, I don't want us just to take these elements and for a moment be aware of what Jesus has done. Let's live like we're children of God. Let's live like the sacrifice that we just remembered. Let's live like it's true every day. Let's live like it's more than just eating a cracker and drinking some juice. Let's live more faithfully and boldly. No, we didn't get to stand there and watch him die. We didn't get to look in the tomb and see it empty. And sometimes, because we didn't maybe get to physically see those moments, it's like we live deluded and watered down. We live too normal, too average, when that's anything but we should be if we follow Jesus. Paul would have an encounter with Christ. See, Paul would start on the wrong side of this thing. He had made it his life's mission to stop what Jesus had started, to snuff it out. Until one day he's walking down the street and Jesus wrecks his life in the best way possible. And it changed everything for him. And he would write this to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter two, verse one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the desires and cravings of our flesh, 
following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable, incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So this is my challenge. Go live. Go live. Go approach life like you are saved, like you are forgiven and free. Live like you're a child of God. Break out of that mindset. Stop looking in the mirror and seeing a, son, a, a, a sinner when God has said you're a son and a daughter. Stop thinking you can't have freedom over that addiction. Stop thinking miracles can't unfold in your life. Stop living so small. Stop living in fear and anxiety when the world is falling apart. Can I remind you, he told John, I have overcome it all. So let's start right now. Would you stand on your feet and let's worship before we leave this building like the promises of God are true. Who's with me? Let's worship like the promises of God are true. Let's worship Jesus this morning. Let's worship. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Church Podcast. We hope that what you experience today inspires you to live and love like Jesus. Stay connected with what's happening at Vintage and grow deeper in your faith by downloading the Vintage Church app. Through this app, you have access to sermon notes, upcoming events, devotionals, additional podcasts, and opportunities to connect in community. You can easily download our app by going to app.vintagechurch.net. We hope you join us again soon.